1 Samuel 27. We're almost to the end of 1 Samuel. We'll be starting uh, 2 Samuel very shortly. First Samuel chapter 27, we'll pick up at verse 1. Now, Heavenly Father, we always like to bow our hearts before you in a word of prayer and ask you now by your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts and give us ears that can clearly hear the Spirit speaking words of life and instruction to us that we might be blessed and be doers of the word, not just hearers and learners in our heads only, but let it uh, translate into behavior and living this out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In David's more mature years, he, he heard the Lord speak to him very clearly, and he includes it in Psalm 32, pretty familiar psalm. The Lord speaking to him, he says, I will instruct you, David, and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Now, we've seen David under the counsel and control and instruction of God in sweet obedience to the Lord. These seven years that we've been talking about since chapter 20, seven years have passed, David being a fugitive and living on the run, being chased by this murderous, crazy king, Saul. And um, mostly he's been doing it in great wisdom, trusting, listening, just like the Lord's exhortation to him. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you and watch over you. And we've been seeing that in action. He's been, David has been refusing to avenge himself, even though this guy's been trying to kill him for no good reason. Uh, when David gets the opportunity, he shows him mercy. And he also resists the temptation of taking uh, things into his own hands to manipulate himself into a better position to force the situation so that he would become king and uh, sit upon the throne. He's not going to do that. He lives by the motto, if the Lord wants me to be king, uh, he'll remove Saul himself and place me on the throne. I love Psalm 75 verse 6. Promotion um, comes neither from the east or the west or from the south. It comes from God who is the judge. He brings one down and he exalts another. And so David lives by that. But tonight, here in chapter 27, you know, there's an exhortation. He says, hey, I want, I want to instruct you, teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you and watch over you. But don't be like the mule that has no understanding. You've got to shove a bit into the horse's mouth to make it go right. You know, don't be like that. I want you to be able to come to me without the bit and the bridle. And the Lord is saying that to him in his later years, possibly because of this kind of chapter, chapter 27, where we see that he disconnects from the communication and communion with God. He's discouraged. He's tired. It's been seven years on the run away from this uh, crazy king who wants him dead. And so we're going to see a chapter now where David is the mule with no understanding. It's an unfortunate and unnecessary chapter in his life. And so 
Last we heard, Saul was calling off a seven-year pursuit. This will be the second time that he's done that, and David is obviously not impressed because it's from here that he gets discouraged. So after David has proven once again that he had ample opportunity to take this guy out, but spared him, you know, he called out to, just to give you context before we dive in, uh, last we heard, uh, David got a safe distance from his pursuer and said once again, you know, buddy, I had the chance to kill you again, and I spared you. And he said, this time, I was standing right by you. You were snoring like a freight train with a spear right by your head. And I didn't kill you. And uh, it just coulda, shoulda, but didn't. And Saul acknowledges the truth once again. He says he's in the wrong. He confesses, oh, I've played the fool. And he blesses David. And he says, you know, everybody knows you're going to be king. And God bless you. And they go their separate ways. But it's all hype. And David knows it. Otherwise, he'd be encouraged. But this chapter right here, after time number two, he hears the hollowness. He knows Saul is leaving. And now I'm, I'm just going to have to relive this nightmare sooner or later. So the discouragement gets to him. And here we pick up now as they go their separate ways. Saul goes home vowing to call off the chase, wink, wink, and David goes back up into the strongholds, and here's what's going on inside of his head. Verses 1 through 4. But David thought to himself, you know, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I'll slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath, where Goliath was from, by the way. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives and they're their names here, and Ananoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. All right, let's pause there. Uh, first point, I've entitled it Stinking Thinking, all right? So uh, instead of letting the Holy Spirit guide him, just like the Holy Spirit promised when he said, I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. That's not going to happen here. He's going to let his discouraging thoughts guide him instead of the voice of the Lord. So a paraphrase verse 1, it says, so here's what's going on inside of David's head. He's thinking, sooner or later, this guy's going to kill me. It's only a matter of time. My best alternative the best thing I can do is just run away. I'll go hide out with the heathens. I'll make my home in enemy territory, and maybe Saul will just give up when he can't find me when he searches all through Israel. So I want to talk to you tonight, to us tonight, about the power of self-talk, because we all have a conversation that is going on inside of us 24-7. And sometimes, as a saved person, we are like a third party to our own thoughts. We are listening 
to thoughts that come up that Paul says in Romans 7 aren't exactly ours. We have a new nature and we're listening to the old nature because we share the same brain. Amen? So Romans 7 says that we have a sin nature that's always giving some commentary along the way and the new man in Christ has to uh, stand against those thoughts. And so, you know, it's very powerful. Um, Proverbs 23, verse 7 uh, says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So in other words, whatever the facts, whatever the truth, you end up living out what you think. And so this is the first sentence. It's the the banana peel for the rest of the whole ugly incident. And, and here it is. But David thought to himself, NIV, but David said in his heart, King James, but David kept on telling himself, New Living Translation. This is why Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says, above all else, watch your heart because really your whole life springs up out of what's going on on the inside Really, the source of all backsliding, like this one, this chapter, really starts with misinformation, and it always starts here. What we say in our hearts has real power, real power to shape our thinking, our behavior, our choices, and our destinies. You know, he didn't say it out loud. He may not have told anybody else. He didn't tell God. He didn't say he's, it says he said to himself, this whole chapter is spawned by self-talk that went bad. It didn't get uh, uh, contradicted by the spirit. Uh, One commentator put it this way. If someone says in their heart, God doesn't care about me, it will make a difference in their life. If someone says in their heart, I, don't, I deserve better than this, it will make a difference in their life. If someone says in their heart, I come before others, it will make a difference in their life. But by the same principle, if someone says in their heart, God loves me and I don't have to earn his love, it'll make a difference. If they say in their heart, I'm grateful for every blessing I have, it's going to make a difference. If someone says in their heart, others come first, it will make a difference in how they live. What we say in our hearts has great power for good or evil, for blessing or cursing. What are you saying in your heart these days? Your heart's talking. You're listening. Are you letting it go on? Unabated, unchallenged by the word of God? You just uh, This is the difference between a, a mature Christian and an immature Christian. The mature Christian is able to say, this is what I feel, but I know what the truth is in the word of God. Lord, I I feel this way. I'm thinking these things, but the word of God says. But the immature Christian uh, doesn't even have that. It's just whatever you're thinking is reality, even when it goes against what you know is true in the word of God. This morning, before I got out of bed, I just came to... I'm aware I'm awake. My eyes aren't even open. And I say out loud, Lord, I know everybody and everything that concerns me is in your capable hands. That's how I started the day. Because there have been some people on my heart that aren't doing quite well with the Lord this Christmas. 
That's a real, it's a real heavy thing. But the first thing, instead of going through that whole thing, I just said, you know, everybody and everything has been entrusted to your care, and you're faithful to keep that which I have entrusted to you until that great day. That's how I started the day. And you know what? I had a pretty good day. I had a lot of peace today. The power of letting your mind dwell on whatever things are excellent, praiseworthy, good, noble, lovely. I'm quoting, of course, Philippians 4, 8. Whatever things are true, think on these things and dot, 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 dot. The God of peace will be with you. Why don't I have God's peace? What's going on up here? You can't stop those thoughts, really. They just come. But you can stand against them with the word of God. You know how I always say, you know, you can't stop the bird from flying over, but you can stop it from building a nest, right? God expects us to cooperate. And I am spending a little bit extra time here because it's such a struggle and it's so important. Life and death, good and bad, success and failure, Productive Christianity versus a wasted life all hinge on what you're allowing in your brain. Second Corinthians 10.5, one of my lifelong scriptures that I've had since I first got saved. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obey Christ. So when the thought comes in, David, you know, he's just going to kill you someday. But that's not what Abigail prophesied, and that's not what Jonathan told me, and that's not what I have said back in chapter 17 myself. And that's not what the Lord is going to do. I feel like this guy. I feel like I can't go another day. I've been doing this seven years. How many more days am I going to have to do it? It would have only been three years. He doesn't know that. In three years from this scene, he'll be reigning on the throne as king over Israel for 40 years. He doesn't know that. Oh, he's just tired. Watch out from letting yourself get tired and run down, spiritually speaking. Do things that encourage you when you see that's happening and you're making dumb choices and you're feeling like giving up and you're feeling like having a chapter 27. Do the things that nurture you spiritually. Have a plan. Have a strategy. We all get to those places, but it's really important. This is how I feel, but this is what I know to be true, and that's the bottom line. And so David follows his despondent thinking and takes his two wives and 600 guys. So it's not just you. It never will be just you. You'll always take somebody with you down your despondent road. And so, lo and behold, in verse 4, and it seems to work. He's in enemy territory, and Saul gets the news and decides to stop chasing him. I want to say this. Just because you see the results like, see, it worked, doesn't mean it was God's way, does it? You know, you might have trouble paying the bills. There's a lot of ways to pay the bills, and not all of them are kosher, right? You can steal, you can embezzle, you can cheat, whatever it is. And you could say, see, the bills are paid. Moving on, five through seven. 
Then David said to Achish, Achish is king over the Philistines. Can you picture Osama bin Laden? This is, this is kind of, he's a bad guy. So you got to get that to understand how low David is right now. So David goes to Osama and says, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. So we've gone from stinking thinking to flying blind. Now, when an aircraft is in flight and loses um, contact with air traffic control, there could be some real big problems. I just heard about a plane that went down uh, last month in New Hampshire. Just the exact thing. Fog, he had no voice in his ear. The voice went dead and the plane went down. Now, Akish. Here, here's David's logic. He comes into Gath, which is command central for the Philistines. And uh, he's going to have to deceive uh, Achish to get what he's after, a safe place to live. And so without prayer, and please notice, God's name is not mentioned one time in the chapter for a good reason. Uh, instead of trusting in the Lord, he's leaning on his own understanding. Uh, David's taken off the headphones that connects him with air traffic control. And without the voice from the tower, it's just gonna get ugly and real dangerous. So um, King Achish welcomes David, which is interesting. Uh, the Arabic proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, um, meaning two parties have a common enemy. They can work together with each other to advance their common goals. So what are their common goals? David's gonna get a hiding place place and Achish, what is he going to get? He's going to get a really good fighter, warrior, and 600 battle-honed uh, soldiers. So they're both going to get a little bit of what they want. But here's deception number one in verse five. He says, if I found favor in your eyes, which is total yuckiness for him to say that to this king, I'm unworthy to live in the royal city, so please give me my own little village. So here's what David's thinking. You know, I don't want to be under this guy's nose and scrutiny all the time. I want to be able to do my own thing and be independent, and uh, that he will be. And Achish is agreeable. So it's like David says, why should I get the cream of the crop? I'd be happy to live out in the suburbs if you just come to trust me. And yeah, Achish is happy to get rid of maybe a little bit of the strain that is on the city from having all those folks, the extra folks. And Achish can use a little help guarding his southern borders. After all, he said, I am your servant. So he says, maybe you can help me out down there. And he's made himself available. Verse 7, Achish gives him Ziklag, which is 25 miles south. And he's going to live there for 16 months. I'm going to say this. Now he's the servant to Osama bin Laden. This is, this is our good guy. How did this happen? You know, he, he wouldn't say he was. 
He's saying because he's got his own plan, he's going to trick him, and he's not really going to be his servant. But, you know, Jesus said, he who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So, really, a passive and unengaged Christian life is really destructive. A lot of people think, I'm not really doing anything wrong. But when you're not engaged and not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you are doing something wrong. Wrong And so, wow, he's in service to the bad guy. And, um, you know, he's not helping. He's scattering. So that's what happens when we try to seek refuge in the world. Maybe I'll just go out there. I'm going to give up. I need a little break. Whenever I hear that in my office, I always get a little bit queasy. I just need a little bit of a break. A break from church, a break from serving. Well, sometimes you do need a break from that. But a break from the Lord? I've heard that as well. I just need a break from the whole thing. Okay. Well, the Lord is life. You can't have a break from the Lord. That's dangerous, amen? So now David and his men have their little fortified city in Ziklag. Um... But you know what? I would say this. You're safer in a field filled with landmines serving God than in a fortified palace doing your own thing. Amen? Okay, eight to the end. Now, David and his men, you get through the end of the chapter. Now, David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. They weren't supposed to be. They were supposed to, they were all Canaanites. They were all under the death sentence of God Almighty. God said, I, I've striven with these guys 400 years, and they will, they will get in the way of me bringing a savior to the world. So they, I've, I've given them 400 years, and they're going to stumble you. So when they came in 500 years previous to this chapter, they did not follow God's commands. These are the people now being mentioned where David is doing his raiding. Verse 9. Whenever David attacked an area, he didn't leave a man or a woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked him, well, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah. Negev just means south in Hebrew. So it's the southern portions of Judah. Against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the southern areas where the Kenites live. He didn't leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious, meaning a stench in the nostrils of his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. So we've gone stinking thinking and flying blind and now lying like a rug. All right. Now, once something is started with a lie, it's got to be maintained by a lie. So here's deception number two. Uh, David has a new occupation. Verse eight tells you he's a raider. The Hebrew word is pashat, and it means to strip bare, to invade, or to pillage. 
Now, I've come up with this, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, as connecting it to what's happened here, because the Philistines are notorious raiders. In fact, in 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 14, 1 Samuel 23, you'll always see the Philistines described as raiders. Israel never raids. They don't, but the enemy does. And now, because bad company corrupts good morals, now he's hanging out there, and he's picked up what they do. So, you know, he's going to become a raider. That's why 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, don't be misled, because a lot of people don't believe this. Bad company corrupts good morals. What did you expect? You know, you're out of fellowship with God. You're, you've broken, you needed a break from his people and the congregation and the promised land and all of that and the temple worship. You had to go out and hide in the world. What did you think? You're going to start acting like the world. That's the, I mean, think like a Philistine, hang out with a Philistine, uh, you'll act like a Philistine. So David probably justifies the raids this way. They're all Israel's enemies. Uh, they were already slated for annihilation, and they should have died 500 years ago. So he's probably thinking, and by the way, they are currently, in this chapter, aggressing Israel. So they are attacking, and they are the bad guys, and they are stumbling Israel. And so uh, that kind of helps get your head around what happened there. Verse 8 uh, tells us who he's attacking, and they're all the bad guys, as I've already said. So, so here's the second deception. He lies to Achish about where he's been raiding. So here's what he's been doing. He raids and he gets all the plunder and he brings the plunder back where? He brings it to Achish back in the capital city. Hey, look what I got. Here's a little bit of it for you. And he's, he's winning Achish over. And that's why Achish loves this guy. And he says, hey, where did you go today? And he says, oh, you know, who did you rip off this time, man? And here's what he says, verse 10. He says, southern Judah, southern Jeremiel, and southern town where the Kenites live. All Israel, all a lie. So he's telling them, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm wiping out my own people, man. And you know what? I'm becoming quite infamous and so because of that, David's implying that the hatred for him in Israel is increasing with great intensity. And so um, this king says, uh, well, after all of this, these three raids here, he says, those people must hate him, hate him really a lot. I was going to say something that doesn't sound very nice, but really hates parts of his intestines. All right. Do you get it? <laughs> Never mind. Moving on. Hates his guts. That's what I was going to say. Now I had to say it because you didn't get what I meant there. All right. Well, they really do. All right. Moving on. Oh. Well, now, guess what happens? Oh, we're not done yet, by the way. There's a little bit more in the next chapter. And then there's a little bit more after that. So we're almost done, though. Guess what happens? King Osama decides it's time to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And guess who he wants right by his side? And so, why don't you flip over to the next uh, verse here in chapter 28. Now, let me give you the why we're only going two verses. 
because this is the battle that Saul will die in. Jonathan will die as well in this battle coming up. After the two verses, we're going to hear the foundation of how Saul is really lost, and we're going to start a new story. But this story is not finished until chapter 29. So we're just going to cut out the part about Saul going to the, to the fortune teller and getting ready for a new story. We're going to finish this story. So here's the first two verses. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, uh, you do understand that you and your men will be accompanying me in the army. And David says, um, <clears throat> then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. And Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. <laughs> so let's pause there because the story now introduces a new story. Let's finish this thought here. So the Philistines gather for war to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And uh, Achish is so pleased with David, as David has been wanting him to. And he turns to David and says, you do realize now we're going after all of Israel. Appreciate you going down to the southern borders like that. And it was safe to do what he was doing because it was so far away. Achish couldn't know that he really was wiping out Achish's allies and not Israel. And so now he's saying, hey, thanks for the little pocket help with these little Judah people down in the south. Now we're going to wipe out the nation. And guess who's going to be by my side? It's going to be you. Now I can imagine David's face. Oh, outwardly, he probably had self-control. He didn't expect this. Inwardly, he's thinking, dear Lord, how did I get into this? And the Lord was saying, Gee whiz, David, I wonder how you did get into this. You know, how we do that? You know, suddenly, where were you, God? I was like, where were you? <laughs> right? Honestly. So um, lie number three, so he says, clears his throat a little, and his eyes look up and left, because that's what you do when you lie, apparently. I Googled that. And so he looks up, and he looks to the left, and he goes, well, now you're really going to see what I can do. You've just heard about it. You've seen the plunder I've brought back. I've told you the stories, but you haven't seen what these hands can do. Well, there's no way he's going to wipe out Israel. He's afraid to even lift a finger to Saul. Saul's on the other side getting ready to fight. He's not going to kill Saul. He's not going to kill one Israeli. He just, he's been lying about it. But now he's trapped, and the king is saying, you do realize you're in this with me, buddy. And then when he finds out, yes, I'm on board, you're going to see me turn into, you know, the flying ninja <laughs> fighter, warrior, power ranger. And then <laughs> I just threw out everybody I could possibly think of there. And what does he say? He says, you know what? He says, I'm going to make you my best friend forever. You're going to be my bodyguard eternally. He's, he loves David. But David is waiting for the chance to ride next to him and then be the, the hero who turns around and in front of Saul then takes off Achish's head. That's what he's thinking. And there, some of them are on to him a little bit here. You've got to skip now the Saul story because chapter 29 
will finish this story. So are you with me? You, I don't hear any Bible pages turning. Oh, maybe it's right there. All right, never mind. Chapter 29, I'll just read it straight through, make a couple comments, then we'll be done. All right, so here we go. Time to go fight the Israelites. The Philistines gather all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring of Jezreel. So Israel's getting ready. Little do they know David's on the other team. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands. Wow. David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, what up with these Hebrews? <laughs> Achish replies, is the, Achish replied, uh, is this not David who was an officer of Saul? I'm all mixed up here, sorry. What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, is this not David who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? Uh, moving on. He was already, he has already been with me for over a year. And from the day he left Saul until now, I found no fault in him. Okay, it makes sense now to me. All right, so uh, the commanders of the Philistine army noticed the Hebrew fighters and their concern. Verse four. But the Philistine commanders were angry with him because Achish said, look, it's David. He's cool. He's been here for 16 months and there's no problem. So the, the guys get angry and they say, send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the, he the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. You see, king, they're together. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, oh, this guy, he's really impacted. You have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I have found no fault in you. But the rulers don't like you very much. Turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord and king? This guy's, he's lost. He's having a lost episode. Achish answered, Listen, I know, I know, I know, I know that you've been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early along with your master's servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel to meet the Israelite army. All right. So last point. Mercy says no. The Lord has let David's charade go on long enough, and he wants to bring this foolishness to an end. And he offers the mule a way out. Now, whatever David is thinking, however he thinks he can pull this off and come out looking good and like a hero, God intervenes and says, no, you're not fighting with the Philistines against the Israelites. 
Um, maybe because David showed mercy, he's getting a little bit of mercy right now. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. For seven years, David's been dishing out mercy. And now David needs some mercy. And he's been making deposits. And so he needs to make a withdrawal. And there are funds in there. The Bible says sometimes you'll need a little mercy, but it's going to be a returned item because you're not a merciful person. Uh, Moving on. You know what? He probably would have got himself killed and the Lord is telling him, no, David, this isn't the way I've got it for you. David's got a good plan in his head, but it's not going to work. Not only that, here's what I really think would happen. David is, if he was fighting and he turns, he's going to short circuit his own destiny. Let's say he prevails. He's going to protect Saul. Saul needs to die in this battle. But if King David is fighting, he will protect Saul. He will fight and he will probably take out the one who would have taken out Saul. So when we lean on our own understanding and try to make the plan work our way, what we're really doing, unbeknownst to ourselves, is short-circuiting our own blessing. Oh, we think we're getting our blessing and we're going to manipulate it, but you're actually working against yourself and God. So God is going to say, no can do. You're not going into this. So the Lord hardens their hearts. You know, I love what these guys say. They really say, what's up with these guys? And, and, and Achish is in love with David. He's got a, a, a bromance going on with him. Is that what you call it? <laughs> well, he, have you heard it? I mean, do you feel it? He loves this guy. He's even invoking the name of his Lord. As surely as the Lord, he's using Yahweh's name. That's, that's just, wow. So uh, the guys are catching on. They're saying, boss, it's a trap. He's going to cut our old heads off to please Saul. And bingo, he's absolutely right. And, and so Dave, here's the ugly part. God gave him a way out. He tells him no. And then he sounds like a little schoolboy who was just told, you can't go to the birthday party. What have I done? Now, now, come on, David. When God opens a door to get you out of the mess that you have created, the disgrace, the shame, the stupidity, the upside-downness of flying upside down, you know, next to the Osama bin Laden coming in to kill Israel. And as David, the king of Israel. Not good. Not good at all. So the Lord says, that's not going to happen. And so God gets him out of it, opens a door. But, you know, it just shows you we're relentless. We really are. He opens a door. We say, oh, I, I don't see it, you know. And the Holy Spirit's speaking. It's like, well, I don't hear a thing. I honestly don't, you know. And that's what David's saying. What have I done? Let's go through my records here. 16 months. Let's start back at month one. Do you remember? You know, he really wants this plan. And the Lord has to pry it out of our hands. 
What is it with us? We're all crazy. <laughs> Amen? I think we are. I mean, how many of you have, have seen a way out of the mess that you've made and you still want to continue down there? And if it weren't for the grace of God, you would have continued. Amen? You don't have to raise your hand, though. But I did see a couple of you. You're just really, that is godly to just say, that's me. All right. Because it's all of us, and that's why. So Achish replies and just says, you know what? I love you, but they don't. Go home and don't bother anybody on your way out, please, and thank you. Um, Verse 11, David relents, and he, he heads back, and he goes back to Ziglak. Well, this is going to be Saul's last days and Jonathan's, unfortunately. And um, here are the reflections that I have. I have four quick little thoughts about what I took away from this. Number one, never give way to despondent thinking, despairing thoughts. Talk back to your discouraged self and let the Holy Spirit instruct you instead of your negative, fatalistic thinking. Number two, the safest place to be is in listening posture. Whatever your soul needs to hear from the word of God, the obedience, Christian fellowship, active service, corporate worship, those kinds of things. Number three, the sooner you can fix a situation that's gone wrong, the better. Just because you made a big blunder doesn't mean you have to keep on blundering. So when God opens a door, you can step through it. And finally, really along the same lines, when God graciously gives you a way out, take it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love and the lessons we learn. Every time we talk about these guys, it just sounds like you're reading our inmost secrets and exposing the foolishness of all human logic, something we all have deep within us. And so, Father, thank you for the instruction. Help it not to go in one ear and out the other, but to lodge deep within us to make a difference in how we live. In Jesus' name, amen.